0: Hi everyone and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. Uh, Today I wanted to talk about something that I've talked about a few times in other podcasts but I wanted to talk about it in a little bit of a different angle and that's just kind of reflecting on my past horsemanship and like how I learned how to ride and handle horses growing up and even in more recent years um, and just kind of talk a little bit about that and as well as like how that impacted my social media following and the intention, the attention that I got on social media and so on and so forth. But before that, I wanted to do just a quick, um, little bit on, on Harlow and how she's doing now. For those of you who didn't see the posts on my Instagram and Twitter, she colleagues pretty badly last week, like end of last week. Um, like Wednesday night she started colicking we had an emergency call and a vet came out to come see her because she was in quite a little quite a lot of pain um and was laying down and up and down a lot and just very very uncomfortable like equine pain face to a t um and just not being herself she wasn't wanting to eat she seemed dehydrated and she was fleming quite a lot um I wasn't there. Janae was there and called the vet because she was doing the night check. And unfortunately, my vet couldn't come out. They were having a different clinic handle their emergency calls for that day. And so I had to get a different vet out, which wasn't my preference, but she needed to be seen. So they came out and they gave her some banamine and a little bit of dorm to help her relax and then said she should be good for the night and to come like to check her tomorrow and see how she's feeling and if she's past manure again then because she had a small poop before the vet got there. Um, anyways so she was okay for several hours and then she was in a horrendous pain again in the morning so I called my vet in the morning and booked an urgent call and then they came out to see her in the morning and they tubed her and um sedated her, gave her some banamine, and then I hauled her into the clinic where she stayed all day Thursday and overnight into Friday afternoon getting fluids and making sure that she's passing manure comfortably because she had um an impaction colic, a pelvic flexure impaction is what they called it. Um so yeah, she stayed at the vet getting fluids and just making sure everything was okay and then I got her on Friday. Um, She's doing well now. I brought her home. She was at a new barn that we were going to move all the horses into on May 1st, but we're not doing that now because of the colic thing postponed everything and there's just a couple of other things so I brought her home so that I could monitor her more closely and keep her on a fluid like more fluidy forage soaked forage diet as we transition her to eating more dry hay um she's still getting like a bunch of soaked cubes and beet pulp and stuff just to get fluid into her for whatever reason she was very dehydrated the vet said um which is interesting because we always soak their food um And, like, soak it so that it's quite soupy, actually. And they get, like, soaked feed daily. And they also had auto waterers. And we'd made sure that they know how to use them. We'd given them bucketed water as well. So I'm wondering if it has something to do with the water on the different property tasting different or something. And that over the period of several days, she was drinking less and less until it became a major problem. Because it's just very weird. Because even in the winter when it's cold, she's not really been a bad drinker even when they don't always have heated water buckets and yeah I've never had a colic this badly ever um and I haven't had any colics in a very very long time so it was just very weird so I I wanted to bring her back here to watch her because it was just so unusual for her um she's usually a really really good drinker and never had has had this issue before even when she was like transitioning off the racetrack and off of racing grain and as far as i know even at the racetrack she wasn't like a colicky horse um so yeah she's home now she's doing well and um is just kind of continuing to hang out and be chilling and we're just continuing the refeeding protocol and keeping an eye on her um and yeah i'm gonna keep obviously feeding the soaked grain um well not grain i call it grain out of habit but it's like soaked forage uh, and keep her on that type of diet, and I've been giving her some more oil as well, and yeah, keep an eye on her. But yeah, it's super weird. So, anyways, needless to say, she's not at the new barn now, and I'm not really planning on moving her back there for the time being. Um, there's just like a few things that happened, and like the the deal we made initially wasn't being kept up, and there is like a lot of other stuff being added to um, our responsibilities for leasing the property that hadn't been discussed prior. So we wanted to postpone it because of that. And then also the stuff with like the horses not drinking, because Percy was also a bit dehydrated as well. Um, even though he didn't colic, he was dehydrated, which was odd to have both of them be dehydrated like that. Um, and like the water was working. We always check their waters daily to make sure they're working. So it's probably just them being picky and not liking the taste of the water. Um, but yeah, so I'm disappointed because I obviously really liked how much grass pasture we were going to have access to, um, but I yeah, I, I'm not comfortable moving forward immediately right now because of what happened with the horses, because I just find it strange, um, and if it is that they didn't like the water, that's going to be something that's like difficult to address unless we truck water in or test the water or something, um, and yeah, like I said, there's a couple of other things that were a little bit of an issue, so Anyways, I'm hoping that we can just kind of, yeah, find more grazing pasture and really just praying for the day that I eventually make it big and can afford my own property because like, oh my God, the peace of mind it would bring to be able to control all these little aspects of property management when it comes to horses, it would be literally a godsend. Um, Yeah, so unfortunately I've been slapped with a large vet bill. Um, The most irritating part of this large vet bill is that the emergency call where she was just administered medication and briefly examined and didn't even have a rectal exam, that only cost $100 less than her staying overnight at my vet's clinic. Um, and getting like round the clock care so that made me a little bit salty because I was just like fuck shit god damn it but like that also speaks for how great my vet is and how affordable they are and yeah so I'm like I'm appreciative that she's okay too because obviously both of those things are cheaper than colic surgery but it's still just like damn it when it rains it pours man Um, yeah but anyway she's doing okay Um, we're gonna keep watching her and just kind of making sure she seems happy and good because that was scary. Um, but like, yeah, I'm really happy to see that she's doing okay. She was very, very, very uncomfortable on Thursday morning. It was horrible. Uh, I thought we were going to have to take her in to have surgery. I'm really glad that she was able to pass the impaction without that. Um, but yeah, it was scary. So, not a fan anyways um today's podcast I wanted to just kind of reflect on my past writing journey and just some common themes that I've kind of gone over especially like as I've learned more like there's stuff that you just kind of look back on and you're like wow like these were kind of defining moments of my writing journey without necessarily realizing at the time that they were that um so yeah there's a lot of little things I've been looking at like some videos recently I got some cassette tapes turned onto usb so i was watching some videos of me riding when i was really young um and showing arabs and i was like still doing a little walk trot classes and i was only like five years old so it was cute but i was like wow that horse that i'm riding is lame so i was looking at that and just kind of thinking about stuff and even in recent years like since social media has been a thing and since i've been posting on social media like a lot of stuff has changed and it will continue to change because that's what growth is But it's just kind of interesting to look back on because I was thinking about it and even when I first started out on social media and I was dealing with Milo and he was like a very difficult horse so he was like interesting for people to watch progress because he first of all like his body transformation in general coming from being so emaciated and under conditioned and just like stunted in growth to what he is now that really interested people but also like his behavior because he was difficult especially off property he'd get really nervous and he was like bucky and just very reactive and difficult and I got so much social media attention over like the bucking videos of him and just when he's being bad and just like fails videos in general those always seem to get the most amount of attention and that's like what wowed people the most and what brought the most views and like attention and like reinforcement in a way on social media Um, And I've noticed that still with like a lot of other people's accounts and then just even like anything I post that like the fails videos and videos where horses are not doing the right thing tend to garner a lot more attention than them doing what people want. um, Unless it's something like at an upper level where it's like a really impressive athletic feat then some in some cases that garners the same amount of attention but it's interesting because the whole like thrills and spills idea of the horse world seems to wow people the most and bring in the most attention consistently um and this leads people to wanting to like curate their content to being that because they notice the patterns and then they go like when you have like a bad fall or your horse does something scary you go like oh yeah this is going to be great to post on social media Um, and I'm not saying that like in every case this is bad because stuff happens you can't expect perfection when you're working with an entire other species and it's okay to like laugh at mistakes but like the degree to which this is taken is what I think is kind of concerning because it's very reinforcing and you're basically like encouraged to like laugh at and mock situations even where horses are like in active danger or in like traumatic levels of stress um, or where the rider is in active danger it just causes people to kind of shrug this off and treat it really flippantly I think like even in really dangerous situations like the amount of videos you can find online of people where they're doing dangerous things with horses or horses are reacting dangerously where they're not wearing helmets or they're contributing to the danger of what they're doing in some way that is unnecessary there's so many videos like this and and they get a lot of attention like the views that I see like the on videos consistently of horses being started too quickly and bronking and having flight responses. Those videos consistently get the most likes and views out of a lot of other videos where horses are trained better, they're calmer, they're happier, and it's a better portrayal of how, like, training and riding should be. The exciting ones where horses are panicking get more views. And, like, even in the media, we see this with, like, movies and stuff where horses, how horses are portrayed. They're either portrayed as, like, completely and utterly obedient, like, robotic, Or, like, they're freaking out at times. And it's kind of always, you know, it's consistently portrayed in movies and shows that horses, like, need to have, like, the bucking and, like, really trying to unload their rider and really say, like, no, a hard no to being ridden rather than, like, showing any instance of, like, quiet upbringing of how horses should be trained. And it causes people to view, like, the bucking and the fear responses as more interesting i guess and more exciting and it also causes people to normalize it as just like oh this is just a byproduct of trying to train horses when that really shouldn't be viewed as the case um and it's, it's interesting because it's just so pervasive in equine culture and like equi- in equestrian culture i should say um and i noticed it with my own pages like i was getting way more views and likes and more followers and more growth in my account when I was posting stuff that was like kind of feeding into like the excitement of riding and like unruly horses and like having a good seat and being able to sit a buck um and having horses that are difficult that you have to like tame and like uh yeah like basically showing like oh yeah look what I can do look at how much I can endanger myself and come out of it alive consistently basically was the whole thing and people ate that shit up like they loved it and Um, my social growth at that point was way more than it is now and I guarantee you if I started doing that again it would probably get more attention yet again and it would result in the same thing where your growth goes up and I've noticed like since I've started discussing welfare more and since I've slowed things down and like what I'm doing is slower and more foundational with less tricks and like impressive moments or moments of excitement where things go wrong I get less views, like even the views of like where I'm showing transformation videos of horses. And in my mind, they're impressive because you can see like biomechanically, like the horse's structure has changed. They have better muscle. They've relaxed. Like the changes in them are more substantial by far than a lot of other videos I see where they're unruly horses, where they're shut down, but you can still see high instances of stress, like not to toot my own horn. Like I've had horses who are literally shitting themselves constantly when they come in. And I'm not saying that all of them are completely stress free because life isn't stress free, but there's a reduction in the level of stress and fear that they feel, which honestly for me is like nice. Like they're coming, they're realizing they have more autonomy, they're coming into themselves more, and they've relaxed. Even if it's not perfect, they're in a better place than they were when they came into me. But people don't like that as much. Um, They don't like the discussion of welfare, they don't like hearing about how things we've normalized and done for a long time might be problematic and not as good for welfare they don't like it they like watching like the tricks the exciting stuff horses doing impressive athletic feats, riders being able to control and manage an unruly horse and stuff like that tends to get way more attention and then it results in people wanting to produce that type of content because it's what gets watched the most. Despite the fact that I think consuming large quantities of this content and having it so normalized I think contributes to people viewing the horse as like an adversary and as like uh an animal that you kind of need to conquer to get it to behave and that you just need to like ride them through all of these problematic moments and like having danger be normalized and even something that you can like gloat about how much danger you've been put in and like, um, situations where your horse really could have injured itself or you, um, using that as kind of like a flex. It's very common in the horse world. And I don't think it would get to the extent it has if people weren't constantly rewarding that online and promoting those videos the most. Because if we normalized the idea of good horsemanship more and promoted that more and had those videos get more views, it would show people practices that would help them and would help improve their relationship with their horse and would help improve their ability to train horses and understand them. But that's not really what people are demanding. And it's not really the content that people are boosting. And I think that it's creating like a very vicious cycle. And it's something that I noticed in myself, because like when I started on horse social media, um, it's largely what kind of got me back into the sport to, like, actually enjoy it with my horses because I was so burnt out from riding and showing the Arab circuit, and I was honestly at a point where I wanted to, like, sell my horse and get out of horses, and moving to, like, a more relaxed barn where we just rode for fun, and then also meeting people on horse social media kind of brought me back into the sport and helped me, like, rediscover my love for horses. So I'm really thankful for that, but I also think it led to, um, like, kind of creating content with the purpose of, like, yeah, like, trying to get more views and stuff, and, like, even if you unconsciously do it, because it is reinforcing to, like, build a following, it is reinforcing to have photos and videos that get lots of likes and just allow you to feel, like, included in a community, especially when you're, like, 16, 15, um, like, a kid, so I would, like, I'm not going to lie and say that it wasn't, so, I think that, yeah, it, and, like, that was kind of how I built, like, my image as, like, a social media person is, like, oh, yeah, like, I have this crazy chestnut horse, and I can ride his bucks well, and, like, I don't fall off, and, like, I'm brave, and, like, look at how well I can sit, and how, like, yeah, like, look at what I can do, basically, um, and it got me a lot of attention, and it, like, like, a lot of the videos of Milo are, like, my top viewing videos, and I think part of that is due to his transformation, and, like, his story in general, because, like, not to take away from how like I used advancing his training too quickly or like his stress level to get views but like his condition and like the horse he's developed into is impressive from the standpoint of like even our vet at the time and like myself we never thought it possible for him to catch up and growth that well so I think that part sucked people in as well but also like largely his behavior and like how difficult he was um and yeah like I capitalized a lot off of him being a difficult horse especially with like how fresh he would be like initially he was in like a less than ideal situation where he was paddocked individually and the paddocks were large enough for him to run around in but he wasn't on group turnout all of the time and there was like a lot of situations in his management that left a lot to be desired and being an already busy-brained horse who is like a more up and like Excitable horse taking away his ability to self entertain and have fun and enjoy himself in turnout resulted in a lot of reactivity that would show itself, like either when he was being led and handled in hand or when he was eventually under saddle. Um, and it made him interesting to watch because, like, yeah, he is athletic, he's an acrobat, and he's clearly very spirited, but it was. Uh, it was an example of like a situation that wasn't fully fulfilling his needs and he was being difficult because of that and then like a lot of his issues under saddle too were him being like overstimulated and reactive and there would have been a lot of better ways that I could have handled those behaviors and caused lasting change and his behavior had been more successful in the long run um but like it's it's heavily reinforced by trainers by people online by your peers to just ride through stuff and to just push horses through stuff and just to like oh if they're being difficult just like let them be difficult. He's just this, he's just that. And it's not really considering like why they're doing certain behaviors. Um, So that was very reinforced and it resulted in me like considering certain things about like why he might be behaving a certain way to the extent that I should have. But like the amount that it's reinforced in the horse world and by who, because a lot of the people who reinforce this type of behaviors are people who are perceived as like professionals and really well-known, knowledgeable people in the community. So it's very hard to pull yourself out of that mind frame and go like, maybe I'm wrong and everyone else is wrong when you're constantly seeing it reinforced by everyone around you including people that you respect as like experts in the community um which is like yeah that's why it's so insidious and problematic and why we need to kind of start to alter how we view things in the horse world and how we view horses in general because yeah it, like I I'm not going to like I don't like to lie about like what I have learned and gone through like there's no benefit to me to be like oh yeah like this is like not what actually happened because it's like I've shared a lot of my writing journey and like my work online so in a lot of cases people can like check and see what I was saying like several years ago or like what Milo was doing several years ago so there's like really no benefit to me to mislead people about that like there he was rushed in a lot of circumstances and it wasn't out of ill intent it was because of like how repeatedly I was being suggested the same things by people in the community that I viewed as professionals and that Um, were well respected and just also how it's reinforced online and like in articles you see and in training videos from other upper level professionals. And then also, yeah, like I sat in person. So it's very hard to break free from that when it's so consistently normalized and enabled by so many different people in the horse world. So it took like a huge shift in mindset before I started to go like, okay, this is really unnecessary. And even still, like I can't I can't fully exercise my right to have training programs exactly to a T to what I think is 100% best for the horse at the speed that they need to move at because with clients and like when you're hired by people like you have to factor in people's budgets like their goals with the horse whether or not they're gonna like keep the horse with you long enough and you just have to improve the horse to the best of your ability at that time and this isn't to say that I would ride like lame horses and work them through that knowing that they're lame like I would tell their owners to look into vet stuff first but when all that stuff's ruled out you're on the timeline that is given to you by the client and you can't force them to continue paying you past the point that they're willing to. So you just have to do the best to help the horse in the situation that you're given. And that's like a reality of being in the horse world that I don't think enough people talk about is even once you start your own business, you can have ideas that of like how you think things can go. You can express those ideas to clients, but ultimately you are on their timeline because they are the customer. Um, and like, you don't have to rush things to a dangerous point, but like also you have to consider like at any point, this horse could be pulled out of your training program, whatever the client sees fit. So you have to do what you can to make the situation best in the situation that you're given. Um, and that can be difficult because yeah, like there's there's been horses where I've had them and I've been set up to like commission them or start them under saddle and do things for clients but they'll have a timeline that like I can tell them like okay like I'll do what I can in that time period but I don't think that we're going to accomplish everything that you need or if they're wanting to sell the horse they can say oh in my opinion I would do this many days of training or get them to this point in their training before listing them for sale but if the owner doesn't want to do that I have to do what I can to like fulfill their timeline in the safest way possible um, and get the horse to a point where I think it's best case scenario for the horse to either go back to the owner at their riding level and go into the program and be handled safely and not have issues arise or help them be able to find a safe home if they're going for sale and find someone who is able to continue on their training from where it's been left off um And I think a lot of trainers are kind of in this boat and a lot of trainers because of that can go into denial about certain things or they can kind of take the easy way out, which is blaming the horse um, and viewing certain behaviors as just like the horse being a pain in the ass because then it's easier to just get mad at the horse and like discipline them or ride through it and not have to consider things as deeply and it's also like it safeguards your mental health it make it makes things easier and more simplistic to do and easier to like reason with clients and also easier to try to fulfill what the clients want you to do but it also misses the mark on considering why horses do a lot of things and for horses that aren't as easy to solve and who aren't as willing to like mask their behaviors or deal with high levels of stress or deal with situations where they may be in pain or confused or emotionally frustrated or their management isn't good and the training program's not factoring that in. Horses like that can become dangerous if all the other regular tactics do not work and then those are the horses that kind of fall through the cracks and end up at auctions or end up with really rough rough trainers that are for, like, problem horses that are ruled as dangerous and they're viewing them as their adversary and, like, as a bad horse rather than a horse that has been misunderstood and needs, um, a lot of factors addressed to find out why they have gotten to the point that they have. Um... And like the problem with that is it results in like a lot of wastage in the horse world because I guarantee you there's a lot of horses who have issues that arise due to like moderate discomfort that isn't like a full-on soundness issue yet but because of how horse people perceive things they'll push them to work through that to the point where it becomes a major issue that then can't be addressed to the extent that it needs to and the horse either can no longer be a riding mount or a competitive mount or so on and it lowers the value of the horse and therefore lowers their likelihood of finding a good home long term and puts them at greater risk of ending up in like a not great place so if we learn how to be more conscious of their behaviors and to consider like why they do the things that they do and like why certain behaviors exist and and kind of welcome the idea that like train good training should kind of look underwhelming from the standpoint of how the horse reacts to things like good training isn't horses that are like Constantly trying to unload their riders or doing things that may be high action and 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 exciting in theory, um, it should be quieter because good training is like setting up horses to find the right answer. Like it, like you wouldn't go to a school and find the most exciting classroom or like the you wouldn't assume that the best classroom is the one that's on fire. You know, like sure it might be more interesting to watch than a than a teacher that's just teaching calculus or something, but it's not fulfilling the role of educating the people you're supposed to be educating and that's kind of how we should view horse training is it's about educating the horse and if they're in a state of high stress and that's being normalized as like a good and necessary part of training we're missing the mark because we already know beyond a shadow of a doubt that a highly stressed mind is not in a position to learn and retain information to anywhere near the same extent as a mind that is alert, but not like in fight or flight mode. Um, And like, we know this to be true. So people can't really deny it. Like, I mean, they can, but it's not like an agree to disagree type thing. They are just wrong. Um, So if you deny it, like it's like, yeah, you're in denial at the expense of the animals that you work with. And if we start to reconsider these things, not only do I think we'll have sounder horses, we're also going to have happier horses because it's hard to be happy if you're in horrendous pain. Um, And we're also going to be more successful. Like they're going to be able to perform better in sport. We're going to perform better as riders and we're going to be more understanding as horsemen and horse people. Um, And it really just requires us starting to reframe our thinking and to reconsider like how we want to be perceived online and like what we put out there because like again like I'm not against posting fails still like I still wear will share fails videos and do stuff like that but it's going to be within a different context because generally speaking fails where the horse has like a panic response are due to me missing something as a trainer or not setting up an, an environment that's as ideal as I could uh and I can recognize that so it's 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 within a different context like i i try to avoid the number of fails that i have um as should everybody and i also don't like i have a hard way harder time laughing at and being lighthearted about instances where the horse is in imminent danger because there's a lot of fails videos that get posted where the horse or rider is like really dangerous like where the one where they're crashing through fences or having like f- rotational falls and stuff like that like stuff like that's not funny and I don't like how glorified it is in the horse world, so I don't like to contribute to stuff like that, but, like, fails need to be viewed within the context of, like, yeah, these are instances where I have fucked up as a trainer, (laughs) um, and I could have done this better, because realistically, like, We can't look at a fail video and go, like, oh, yeah, like, this is completely unavoidable in 99% of cases. Like, in most of them, you could have probably avoided it, especially when you're looking at it in hindsight and watching it over. There's probably stuff you could have done better to avoid what happened, Um, and that's kind of me reflecting on my prior writing career. Like, now that I'm so many years ahead and I've learned as much as I have, I can point out a lot of flaws in how I was taught to do things and things that I did and things that I believed. At the time, I couldn't do that so easily, but I would have probably been more able to do so and get to that point if there wasn't such a culture in the horse world that, like, encourages me to be the way that I was. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do with my content is try to defer away from that culture and try to point out why it's problematic and, like, talk about how it impacted me because it created a lot of really negative habits and a lot of toxic habits that impacted my ability to train well and also impacted my relationship with my horses and also sucked a lot of the joy out of enjoying horses. Like, even just the entire culture of, like, horses are only really useful when they're riding horses. Like, people who have a horse but don't ride it or if they have a horse they do ride but they don't ride it very often or they haven't ridden it if, if, in a uh, blah blah. Oh my god. They haven't ridden it in a while or whatever and they're posting online. They'll get questioned, like, oh, why aren't you riding so-and-so? Why aren't you working with so-and-so? Like, even, if the horse is like clearly still being cared for, still a part of their life and still doing stuff with them. People will question why you're not using them as a riding horse, which is weird because it's like can you can I not just enjoy my horse just existing here? Like for me with a lot of my horses it's just that I'm too busy with clients. But people will still be like, "Oh, like is so and so okay? Like why aren't you riding them? Are they okay? Are they still alive? Do you still have them?" and it's like yes, just not everything is about riding. Like, it's not the most important thing, the be-all and end-all. And, like, framing it as such robs people of a lot of the joy that they can experience enjoying, like, the little moments with horses and, like, the bonding stuff that you can do with horses to actually get a better relationship with them and get to know them better. There's, like, a lot of stuff you can do. Not only that, if you do those little those little things and start to enjoy moments outside of riding to their fullest extent and stop prioritizing riding as the be-all and end-all, you'll get to know your horse better and you'll be able to be more aware of when they're experiencing unusual behaviors which will lead you then to be more able to diagnose things and help them out and notice when things are not normal in riding and training um and then you can make sure that your horse is the happiest when you are working with them and able to do stuff with them but yeah the priority on riding makes it out to be that horses who cannot be ridden are useless and don't really serve a purpose anymore and it it makes them more disposable which is I think the biggest problem sorry my cat is meowing in the background and I'm not going to crop this out because that's too much work so and the last thing horses need is to be viewed as more disposable because in the competition world they're already very much viewed as that to the point where people will like sell horses who are chronically lame to do like lower level stuff but still stuff that's past their limit and just the amount of like distress and discomfort we see in the show world like we don't need to normalize that more we need to be swaying away from that and to do so we can't actively encourage the very behaviors that got us to where we are today Um, and it's going to be harder to do because unlike with dogs like we've Domesticated horses to like be our work, our work horses, like our work animals. Like, work horse is a term because that's what we used horses for. Whereas dogs were more domesticated as companions and whatnot. So there was more of a mutual respect uh, where humans would be more likely to be rewarding and kind to the dogs because they were actively trying to befriend them whereas with horses when we domesticated them it was with the purpose of using them for their strength and their power and to do specific roles for us so that was more about kind of making them do what we wanted them to do but now we know better and we know way more about like behavioral science and like psychology and like how horses think feel and need to be cared for so now we have more of a response responsibility to not be a certain way than we would have back then like it's one thing to make mistakes and do things like without knowing what you're doing wrong but like once you know better it's kind of your responsibility to keep growing and learn to do better and that can only be done if we start to kind of call out the elephant in the room, which is, like, what the horse world enables in, in their attitudes of the average horse person um, and how we enable, like, a lack of regulation in professionals and so on and so forth, and how we normalize a lot of, like, completely backwards care practices that have been completely disproven. Like, all of these things are what have enabled the culture we've created today and what have enabled such poor care of horses. And it's really a shame because, like I've said in other podcasts, like, growing up and, like, learning all the horrible stuff that I did that was completely wrong and just not okay and caused me to have a lot of messed up toxic mindsets about horses learning all that stuff when I had gone into the horse world as like a kid who absolutely loved horses, just loved them as animals and like cherished every second I spent with them, whether I could sit on them or not. Like I just wanted to hang out with brush and play with horses and I loved them and I would never have wanted to hurt them. Going into the horse world like that and like coming out, learning the things that I did and doing the things that I did and enabling the type of things that I did really bothers me because as a child like I didn't really have a choice in that I was following the the roles and like the rules set by adults and what they told me and if I ever had expressed concern where I'm like oh I don't want to be mean to him though I was quickly like assured that oh they can't feel that or oh it doesn't like don't worry he's not hurt like yeah so on and so forth they'll just justify it and shrug it off and basically say oh like you're a silly kid basically I'm right listen to me and then eventually over time you just start to defer to believing what they say even when it can be coming from a place of complete bullshit and that it is coming from that place in a lot of cases where they'll say things confidently and be like oh yeah like he's not in pain or like oh like this is totally fine it doesn't hurt him or like oh like they just do that because of this or that when you're talking about stereotypic vices and kids just learn to shrug it off and just believe what they're told so then over time like you can have so many different perceived professionals telling you stuff that is completely false and saying it with such confidence that you just never question it and look it up and it damages how you view and how you treat your horses, um, and as a person who came into this as like literally your, the definition of a horse girl, like a horse kid. Because if you saw me as a kid, like I played with horses, like stuffed animals. I had briar horses. I had Playmobil. I had so many horse books. Like for basically my entire elementary school like years, I only read books about horses. I loved horses, and all I wanted was to have my own horse and to be able to enjoy being around horses and I would spend like hours a day at the barn like literally just cleaning stuff and I would love it because I would be around the horses so it is just such a catastrophe that we're taking people like that and turning them into people who will like freely without question just like hit their horses or knead them in the gut or put their horse in a stall 24-7 and deprive it from socializing with its buddies and have the horse actively suffering from these things, but the person is completely unaware and they think that they're, like, taking good care of their animal and they're doing what they've always been told to do and what they've been told is right, but they have no idea how it's impacting the animal that they really love and have never wanted to do wrong by. And that's so sad and so messed up that this is like how we raise and like condition and indoctrinate horse people into being that way and how hard it is to find the type of training situations where that won't happen and I don't really want that as like my legacy as a horse person where like you're basically conditioning young impressionable people or people who are naive and just love horses and want to be around them you're conditioning them to be slowly more and more cruel to their animals with, like, a lack of care or knowledge on how to properly care for horses in a way that they actually need to be cared for. Like, a lot of the ideals that we develop about horses are more about, like, human convenience and what we want to do with them than it's about the welfare of the animal. But then we pass it off as being about the welfare through lies and through misinformation and denial of science and you have grown adults doing this and people who have high positions in the horse world doing this and like big equestrian news outlets doing this and like it, it, it is like a blatant and like it, it's a choice like it's a decided choice with the stuff they portray on equestrian news outlets and how they enable certain types of abuse if it's happening with an upper level rider or someone who's notable it is like a it's a definitive choice like they choose when to try to bury certain news articles they choose the words they use to portray certain types of trainers and upper level equestrians they choose the sources they use like the greatest example I can think of of this is like with the Danny Waldman situation where she posts a day in the life video where she shows that her horses do not get turnout and then she replies to comments and says straight that she cannot risk them getting injured in turnout and that they get hand grazed and that they get enough exercise to make up for the lack of turnout and that it's not a welfare issue and that they're just like expensive horses um does so publicly is documented doing so and then manages to get an interview with one of the major equestrian publications the horse and hound that paints her in an entirely favorable manner and just kind of makes it out to be that it's not a welfare issue for horses to not be turned out or have socialization. Um, And kind of, like, I don't know, it took a bit of, like, a classist tone where it's like, oh, these are elite competition animals, like, not, like, the average horse people don't understand. And then with the amount of backlash they received, they then edited the article after the fact with a note from the World Horse Welfare Organization, something like that it's called, um, from, like, the chief executive of that saying that, like, it is definitively a welfare issue and that horses need turnout and that it's not something that, like, comes without detriments to their welfare. And they edited that after the fact but didn't note that it was edited, um, which I think is really shady. But, like, basically, that's, like, a... that That's a choice. Like, the news publication was doing it to try to limit the backlash that Danny Waldman experienced, and when they started getting too much backlash, they quickly took the easy way out and just added a quick note at the very end that indemnifies them from accountability because it makes it look like, oh, like, we've looked at both sides of this but it was just like a quick spur of the moment trying to save their own asses type thing. And we see this a lot because like with the Mark Todd cases too, there is a lot of articles that came out in favor of him. There's a whole ass petition that was defending his actions in that video, despite the fact that he didn't even defend them himself. And the reason why this happens for these types of people is because they're notable in the community. You bet your ass that if you took a video of like the average amateur rider or junior rider that no one knows doing the exact same thing he did and posted it everywhere, they would not- not get anywhere near the same support that he he would they would have the same people that would defend mark todd then trashing them because they are not mark todd and they would assume that because of that the person cannot have an educated stance on whether or not it was a good choice to hit a horse with a branch in that circumstance but people will freely believe upper level riders have their horse's best interests at heart and can make decisions that account for welfare and result in the horse's safety and not being abused simply because of who they are because we consistently hold that up in media and we put them on a pedestal that basically lets them get away with a whole lot of other stuff that the average horse person couldn't and it's all part of this culture is that like puts way too much value in the hands of upper level horse people and like judges and people who in reality like all their knowledge is solely about the sport it is not about the animal or the welfare of the animal it's about how to get the animal to do things that make them like make them successful in a certain sport none of which are directly correlated with good welfare practice so someone being a good rider or a good judge or someone who is notable in the community as a sport person like as a coach or or something all that means is that they've had success in preparing horses for sport and winning ribbons all like you can do that completely while depriving your horse of basic needs and even while riding lame horses because if you pump them full of enough drugs you can mask lameness so their success at a certain level and their ability to churn out nice horses and riders doesn't indicate success of good welfare. It just means that they're good at the sport and they're knowledgeable of how to win and be notable in the sport. And what we need to view that with is that that's nowhere, that's never directly correlated with welfare. Some people are good in the sport and have good welfare for their horses, but they don't have a correlation because currently with how we run the show world and how things are judged, You don't have to treat your horses well in order to get famous and be beloved by everyone in the community because it's not valued enough. And the regulations of shows also do not demand that. And the general social license with how people perceive you also does not demand that because it's still way too acceptable to do things that we know really damage horses' happiness and health. So it's just, it's sad because also like, Most of the people in the community, including the ones that are perpetuating a lot of these problems, most of them went into the horse world because they do love horses as an animal and they've been tainted by what we normalize and teach. And... A lot of them are so far down that rabbit hole that they don't want to consider that they could have been taught things incorrectly and that what they do could be harming horses because they're too proud. They think they know too much and they don't want to admit that they've been wrong for any length of time, let alone most of their riding career. So a lot of them will argue their right to do what they do until they're blue in the face, despite all the evidence showing them that it is detrimental to their horses. And that cognitive dissonance is what makes this such a tricky subject to address because people are willing to mock and make fun of anyone that they perceive as less educated or less experienced which honestly a lot of really educated and experienced horse people in terms of the equine science and behavior side of things are not well known by the competition side people because again welfare and equine science is not valued enough in those circles so even like some of the top scientists and equine behaviorists if you brought up their name to people in the show world a lot of them would not be aware of who these people are and they would quickly shrug it off because they'd be like oh what level have they competed at oh like they don't know what they're talking about despite the fact that these people have way more relevant credentials to be making the claims that they do than any trainer does and that like that miseducation and that lack of value for scientific fact and like evidence that studying horses and disproving a lot of our prior association with them that lack of desire to question that is what results in a lot of this ignorance in the horse world. And like, I had that for a while because it was actively encouraged. Like, trainers try to groom you into being this way because they want you to just do what they say and believe that they know what they're talking about. And they don't want you to question them, a lot of trainers, because if you question them, that means they have to be able to explain what they're telling you. And a lot of them don't really have a good enough explanation outside of because I said so, or because like you're letting him get away with this, or you're going to teach your horse back bad habits, or some other type of, like, indirect way of blaming you as the rider for causing your horse's problems, rather than acknowledging the fact that the rider might actually have an idea um, that is worth considering in terms of why the horse might be misbehaving. But, We're taught not to question things. We're taught to just smile and nod and do what our trainers say because they'll go off about horses being dangerous and how like you can't let them get away with stuff, especially when you're on lesson horses. I've literally had trainers look at me and go, you're going to teach my horse bad habits that can injure other people. So you better listen to me or get off. And when that's what you're faced with, you very quickly learn to like gag yourself and shut up and just assume that you don't know anything. And it's like an excellent tactic for, um getting control over the people that you teach because it basically renders anything they ask or um, question completely like uh, not listened to and completely just shrugged off and like oh you don't know what you're talking about so nothing you say matters you're always viewed as not being educated or knowledgeable enough to question things and you're not having things explained well enough to you to understand them so you just you're so dependent on your trainers every instruction because they're not really giving you skills to be self-sufficient or problem solve on your own because it's all about, oh, just listen to me, do this, do that, blame the horse for this or that. And then it teaches you not to be a critical thinker. So a lot of these horse people are not critical thinkers. They don't know how to define a credible source. They don't know how... Equine behavior studies and equine science studies actually even work because so many horse people will go, oh well, equine scientists aren't trainers. You can't train a horse in a lab, and it's like, well, yeah, you can't. Do you think that they conduct training studies in a lab? No, they go to barns because that's what scientists do. Like that's like the silliest thing I've ever heard. Because then it's like you could throw out any study with that, be like, oh, do they not conduct this in a house though to find out if people fall down the stairs enough or whatever? I don't know. Like that, I just made that up, but like. Studies where they need to conduct the environment in the specific environment, they conduct it in that environment. You're not taking horses in a lab. You're going to farms and you're creating protocol that works for studying a horse in that environment because that is the environment that you're testing. And so many horse people don't think that horse studies have validity because they just think that it's something that you're testing with like a textbook in front of you and not like in practice. But the only way you can test a lot of those things is by doing them in practice and observing them in practice. And that's like what a lot of equine scientists are doing is observing horses in practice, both in natural and unnatural environments. And they're doing so with an educated eye, which sets them far above any instructor because they can watch those things and they don't have an inherent bias that stems from information they would have been taught when they were younger that may or may not have come from a credible source. People in the science sector know that their information has come from a credible source because their entire job is about eliminating bias and finding the real answer. And the... The lack of knowledge that we, like, actually teach the average horse person about how these proce- like how these procedures work and how, like, the protocol works for testing certain equine science and behavior things, the lack of knowledge is to, like, it, it, it's for the purpose of ignorance. Like, if people knew how these things worked and if we taught them how to critically think and we taught them to ask questions and we taught trainers to know enough to be able to answer questions, it would be a lot harder for people to lie to others and to not... Um, and to actually give out factual information. Because, like, if you have to actually be able to explain why you're telling someone to do what you're telling them to do, you have to know exactly, like, why you're asking a certain exercise to happen. Like, what you're targeting. You have to be able to address the horse's behavior and why they're behaving a certain way. If you don't know how or don't want to do that, it's a lot easier to just blame the, your, your student for being stupid or just, like, shrug it off and be like, oh, we don't have time for this. This is dangerous. You just need to do it. And this is how a lot of trainers teach. They don't teach you why you're doing certain things, or if they do, it's not in enough detail, or if they do, it's not necessarily an accurate portrayal of what's actually going on, and they might be misreading some of the horse's behavior. But then all of these little instances stack on top of each other, and you're basically, like, the you're you're created into this equestrian with all of these problematic views that are completely unfounded in practice and in science um and it's frustrating because honestly like. It, it, it is easier to just dig your heels in and lay into what is comfortable and be like this is what I was taught by like all of my mentors this is what I've always done so this is what I believe that's easier to do than to actually question everything you've been taught admit that you know less than you thought you did and have to go back and basically relearn a lot of different ways to teach horses in kinder more ethical ways and undo a lot of the bad habits that you've learned. Like, that takes a lot of dedication and a lot of desire to want to change and also a lot of ability to hold yourself accountable and self-reflect, and it's really hard to do. So, for most people, it's it's so hard to do that they will deny it and dig their heels in pretty hard, even if they do eventually decide to change what they do and like that's kind of what I did initially is like I would dig my heels in hard about stuff and would really lay into stuff that I was taught and I wouldn't want to believe that I might be wrong because that meant having to reflect on how many years I spent learning the wrong things. And that was easier to do at the time. But like, as I've learned more, I've learned how much it actually helps me in practice and how I'm more able to help different types of horses in ways that I would have not been able to do before. And I can keep myself safer and I can keep my horses happier and I'm more conscious of how they feel now. So it was definitely a worthwhile endeavor to work on myself in that way. But it is frustrating to look back and look at like the degree of which the the degree to which I was misled and how many bad habits came out of that because it's hard to look back at that and not consider how far ahead you would be now if you had better influences and also how things would have been different with the horses that you encountered in your lifetime if you had learned how to do things better faster um and I think that's one of the most frustrating things about all of this is like, to just look at how many years were wasted doing the wrong thing and causing harm where you weren't meaning to. And like, I won't, yeah, I wanted to talk about some of my old posts on social media for that reason. Like I leave the vast majority of them up. I don't think I've privated like any videos on any of my new accounts. Cause I used to have older ones that I deleted and then like restarted when I first initially started on Um, horse social media but like I leave all of it up so like people can see like I used to not know enough about equine nutrition I wouldn't feed them enough I was way too focused on feeding too much grain as a means of fixing dietary issues um, rather than realizing how important hay was I didn't used to value turnout in the same way I do now like there was a lot of things I could have done better with Milo and his management and training especially for the first several years of having him around and like I have a lot of regrets and I wish that I learned how to do the things um how to do things right sooner on and how to know when things were going wrong and I wish I had been more self-sufficient um but all I can do now is kind of reflect on that and talk about it to people. Cause I think that we are encouraged to not be self-sufficient in the horse world. Like you're very much encouraged and groomed to rely on trainers and you're kind of indoctrinated into that process. The idea that you need a trainer and it's to the point where people will kind of take a little bit of a classist tone and mock people who don't have trainers or don't get lessons um, for what they view enough Um, but like a lot of those people could be spending time doing learning online and learning about equine behavior and doing stuff like that without necessarily being in the type of training program that a lot of riders value more but there is like that tone that it's like oh like you need to be taking regular lessons with a trainer even if that trainer is forcing you to ride your horse through clear discomfort or so on and so forth like there's like it, there's a very rigid view of like how an equestrian is supposed to look and like what they're supposed to prioritize and how many times like how much they're supposed to lessen and a lot of that is like rooted in people not being truly self-sufficient because not very many riders know what their horse even eats because it's usually handled by like full board facilities a lot of riders are completely unaware of that or even if they do know what they eat uh, it's the trainer or the barn owner who has created the diet program like horse owners don't really know a lo- like a lot of them, this isn't to insult anyone. They don't know really what to feed their horse and same with hoof care. Like they are completely reliant on the perceived expert in that situation. They don't know enough about the animal to hold their own in the way that they'd need to, to like really advocate for them. And if they, even if they try to, they're very quickly um, made like put down and kind of viewed as, like, oh, you're not experienced enough for this, you don't know what you're talking about, stay in your lane type thing, which furthers the idea, like, like, oh, don't even try, you're stupid, you don't know anything, I know everything, listen to me, which makes them more dependent on those types of people. Like, very few horse owners that I know know what their horse is eating to the point where they could actually like balance a diet and do it well on their own. And a lot of them also don't know, know enough about hoof care to know whether or not their horse's hooves are dysfunctional or not. And they think like some of them may think that they do or they are so rooted in in the opinions of their farrier or their barn owner, that if you point out, like, oh, hey, that's not ideal, here's some reasons why, here's some studies why, they get defensive and they're like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, you don't know my horse. And that excuse is used to a lot, to justify a lot of stuff, is you don't know my horse. And it implies that somehow each horse is so different that they don't have the basic species-specific needs or species-specific, like, functionality of their bodies, namely hooves. Um, And, like, to an extent, it is true. Like, people can be so judgmental where they'll judge things without having enough information on the topic, but with a lot of things, this is just used to shut people up and avoid people having fair criticisms of, like, the average care of the horse in the modern world. Um, and it's kind of just used as, like, a cop-out. Like, oh, you don't know the horse. It's, it's the same type of thing as, like, oh, you're not an upper-level rider. You can't judge. If you've never ridden at that level, you can't judge. Because it's basically to remove any ability for other people to express concerns about horses and just shut up the topic of welfare. Um, and, yeah, it, it's, it's, it perpetuates the whole dependence on people who are perceived as more experienced while offering people no tools on how to improve that knowledge in themselves or how important it is. And I think that's kind of why the horse world is so resistant to change, especially fast change, because, like, we've created this normalized network of, like, basically, I don't know, like, passive-aggressively traumatizing people into not speaking up through like normalized bullying and toxicity and like dysfunctional relationships in the barn because like I don't know like obviously people are dicks everywhere and you can get bullied everywhere but the amount of bullying and like toxicity in the horse world is more than anything that I've experienced in other other areas of life. Like, it's, it's way more insidious and way more normalized, like, even to the point where it's, like, normalized for trainers to, like, bully kids and their own students and be mean in the name of, like, tough love and teaching people how to do things. So, we normalize all this really toxic behavior that's, like, rooted in, like, blame and, like, shaming and, and like, stuff like that while trying to take away people's abilities to advocate for themselves and feel comfortable doing so because like if you're shamed enough and you're just like continuously made fun of and made to feel stupid you stop trying to speak out on things because you just assume that you don't know what you're talking about and i already had issues like this that were caused by like bullying that happened in school and stuff that was really unrelated to horse people in specific but i would also say a lot of it is specific to the horse world because the amount of like gossip and just cruelty and um, like, backstabbing, kind of, and just, like, yeah, stuff like that that happened to me in the horse world, even as, like, a young kid within, like, show barns. Like, show barns are the worst. Like, I, I never met as many toxic people as I did when I was actively showing and boarding at show barns. Like within a single barn, there was just so many people that like went out of their way to be mean spirited and just did kind of mean things and just normalized weird types of like toxic behavior that were, were just like shrugged off and like no one took issue with, yeah, trainers being mean to kids. Um, that they taught, and just being way too blunt, kids having to work for free and do, like, heavy labor when they're p- literally paying to be there, uh, stuff like that, really normalized. Like, it, it, it's normalized to underappreciate employees, underpay employees, take people for granted, take on free labor, insult and bully students in the name of teaching them, and encourage, like, the same type of abuses and, like, toxicity in like, directed at our horses. But if you're constantly treated like that by the people around you, it's not really surprising to me that the horses then become yet another target for deflecting that type of anger and lack of self-reflection. And then also, of course, in the show world, we have all the issues with, like, body shaming and um, racism and different types of bigotry that is normalized. And also, it's just very classist and elitist. So until we start calling out This type of behavior, I don't think we can really like remedy the horse world because it requires like basically all horse people to kind of send themselves to therapy and start to really reevaluate their thinking practices and like how they justify things in the horse world and like what they may have learned and what contributed to how they learned those things. Because I don't know, it's always like mind blowing to me to look back at like the stuff that was normalized to me on a daily basis by literal adults. Um, it's kind of scary, and like, I'm not surprised that I developed like anxiety and like imposter syndrome, and just kind of weird, cons- weird misconceptions about horses and their behavior and how we should train them because, like, it was just like people demanded that I do that in order to stay feeling safe in that space and to stay feeling like I was progressing and learning. Like I, I I was made to feel like I had to like assimilate and just listen and that I was the one that was stupid if I didn't really agree with something. Um, and like now it's also way easier to look stuff up because like the internet was not what it is today especially when i was really young so like i was really limited to like books and then the people that i met and even with books it's like you can't google the reviews on a book and pick which one is the most knowledgeable and go get it out of a library like it's difficult to do back then so i didn't have the same means of fact checking things and then once the internet really did start to blow up and studies became more accessible I had been in such an echo chamber that it was really hard to, like, open up my mind to that stuff and consider, like, how misled I might have been and how many problematic practices that I might have been taught. So I initially would kind of bristle and I would get defensive and I wouldn't want to really consider the studies in the way that I needed to like I wouldn't want to go too far looking into stuff that I didn't believe in and didn't want to believe in because I didn't want to believe that it could be the truth so I wasn't actively trying to educate myself other than trying to like cherry pick stuff that supported what I wanted to believe or briefly skimming articles that didn't and that of course halted growth and then when I started doing more, like, online classes and equine science classes, it gave me the ability to look up a lot of different studies through the university library and read a ton. And also, like, I, ha- I was getting instruction from professors and, uh, like, equine behavioral professionals and stuff, and that was very eye-opening. And it kind of started to really make me reconsider yeah what I'd been taught. And like, like I've mentioned before Milo too, because so many of the methods that I've been taught to handle certain behaviors, like it was all very punishment based. Like if they do something you don't want, like shank them, back them up, like hit them with the end of the lead rope, that type of stuff. Um, and stuff like that would not work with a horse like him and he would get more and more dangerous and would come at you. So I very quickly had to be like, okay, like this is not that successful. Like I have to figure out different means of doing that but I wasted a lot of years doing the wrong thing and it made it inherently harder to welcome different ways of thinking because I had been taught to not question things Just blindly do what I was told, and to not even remotely consider the possibility of a rewards based program because I had been so conditioned to like never hand feed horses treats and that like they needed to just be taught using pressure. Like, treats were never even brought up as an option for regular training of horses. So, like, literally, my brain did not even know how to comprehend the idea of using a rewards based program. Um, to the degree the, the blah, I cannot talk today. To the degree that I can today, like it, what, it did not cross my mind because I had never been taught that it was even an option. And like I said, that limits your capacity to think, problem solve, and have critical thinking skills, like because you're taught just to not even consider the possibilities. And It's kind of funny because I know that there's like, I draw a lot of parallels to horses who are traditionally trained in very punishing programs to horses trained primarily with positive reinforcement because horses trained in punishing programs are not as likely to search for answers. Like they're afraid to offer a lot of different behaviors because it runs the risk of being punished if they offer the wrong ones. Whereas horses trained with rewards-based programs are likely to continue trying new behaviors to try to figure out what the right answer is because they've been welcomed in doing so and have had the autonomy to make mistakes and not be punished for them repeatedly. And there's also more of an effort in place to try to show them what you want them to do and reward them for it. So then you're rewarding the try you're teaching them to seek and to offer you behaviors to try to solve the problem and this creates problem solving skills and thinking skills so I think that the way a lot of riders are taught is similar to how horses grow up in punishing environments where you're taught not to ask questions you're taught not to offer behaviors in fear of getting the wrong one and being yelled at or punished in some way and you're taught to just do what you are told and just be obedient without question and, yeah, to just listen without any priority on, like, how you feel or being able to have autonomy and make decisions or feel like there's clarity in training. Like, you're it, it's, it's a more stressful place to be in and it results in riders asking less questions and having less thinking skills because we've not been encouraged to seek the answer in the same way. People are encouraged to be reliant on their trainers and to not really question the status quo and to only really learn about... The, the traditional methods of training and like th- the way things have always been. Um, and I think like it, it's funny because there's a lot of parallels you can draw between the riders that you see in those types of training programs and the horses because they're not liberated to critically think and do things in the way that they would need to to experience the same comfort that you can when you're taught to, that, that you're not going to be punished for offering the wrong behavior or trying to get the right answer. And trainers that allow their students to ask questions and who take the time to explain things are facilitating the right kind of behaviors because you're opening dialogue and conversation. You're letting your students ask questions, ask for clarification, and you're giving them a safe place to do so. You're not teaching them that they're going to get ridiculed or, um, yeah, embarrassed for making What could be viewed as a stupid question, or just get like an answer that makes them feel bad, where the trainer kind of cuts them off and is short with them, or makes them feel like they shouldn't ask a question? Trainers that open the dialogue and want their students to learn and understand why they do things the way they do are creating students that will ask questions and are always thinking about, like, okay, why is this happening a certain way? Why is the horse behaving like this? Why do we use this equipment? Why do we use that one? Because they want to know the answer and they want like a clear answer, they want the full description they want they want to know enough to like make critically thought out decisions and to do that you need to ask questions in a variety of different scenarios and feel comfortable doing so and the trainers that do that typically have students that are more able to make their own decisions and really have well-thought-out opinions on things because they're encouraged to consider different outlooks on things. They're not just encouraged to only believe what their trainer says and to never look at what other trainers say or to consider other perspectives because there is that dialogue. If the student brings up something the trainer doesn't do or agree with, they can open that dialogue and the trainer can explain why they feel the way that they do to the student and allow them to better understand certain aspects of horse care, training, or management. And then the kid or the the adult student who however old they are they can then decide where their stance is, even if it's not exactly the same as their trainer on something. And this applies on either side. The trainer could be more progressive than the client or the client could be more progressive than the trainer. Being able to have that dialogue with the trainer, even if they're not 100% on the same page with you and the care of your horse, is like a really important trait to have. For example, like a trainer who doesn't personally use positive reinforcement, if they're open to having that dialogue with a client and discussing why the client wants to use things a certain way and trying to cater to that and develop, like, a mutual understanding. They're way more likely to work well together than even a trainer who has a client who holds similar views in terms of traditional training but cannot communicate as effectively because... You can meet in the middle. You don't have to do everything the same that your trainer does. Your trainer can have views that you don't personally agree with. But if you're able to talk to them and share your stance and them share their stance, you can meet in the middle and develop training plans that work out for both of you. But a lot of trainers do not allow for that because they view it as, like, some sort of um, bruise to their ego to have a client that doesn't completely believe their every word and, like, basically treat them like their word is gospel, And, and a lot of trainers are insecure about clients going to other trainers or other clinics and whatnot. And there's a lot of rules pertaining to that as well. So there's a lot of means where, of means of trainers and barn owners trying to enforce control over clients, like even over like farrier care and like what vets they can bring in. There's a lot of that. And that results in clients, again, lacking the ability to critically think and make decisions and be able to advocate for their horses in the way they should be able to as horse owners because there's a lot of steps in place to take that away from them and to give more of that control to other people who are perceived as professionals and more knowledgeable in the community. But escaping from that is a journey and it takes a lot of self-reflection and growth. Like my social media has changed a lot but like I think that the mindset that helped continue a lot of my problematic stances in horse care that mindset still very much exists and it's still very rewarded and very very normalized so I think that people just need to kind of reconsider how we view things and we need to start to shift our mindset a little bit and open that dialogue and consider like how we want to be portrayed to non-horse people but also how we want to have the horse world exist and how we want horse people to be treated within the horse world and how we want horses to be treated because even within people there's a lot of behavior that is super toxic that we normalize and enable because we allow people to behave that way and we're just like oh that's just how the horse world is horse people are blunt (laughs) ha 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 oh yeah horse people just do that they criticize like if you're going to post this this video of your child learning how to trot people can criticize your five-year-old and make fun of how bad of a rider they are because you chose to put it up there uh or if you post a video, a photo of you riding people can comment on your weight because you chose to share it and there's so many stuff like so many things that we normalize where we defend the person who is like the perpetrator and being unfair at the expense of the person that they're targeting because we're just like oh that's how horse people are and it's like they're only still like that because we allow it to happen and we're literally letting full-blown adults off the hook for being like actual assholes to assholes to even children I don't know why assholes said that like that. Jeez, I cannot speak. I need to drink more water. Um, but yeah, like we enable a lot of these behaviors and the only way that we're going to see change if, is if we start demanding that change and stop enabling it and going, oh, this is the way things have been. So like, let's just let it keep being that way, I guess, and not try to change anything because stagnation is awesome. No, we need to not do that. And like, I hope that talking about like my prior stuff, is a good way of doing that because it's, like, it's not a weakness to be able to look back and admit where you make made mistakes and, ad- and admit to or discuss what you think may have contributed to you making those mistakes because that can help other people to not make those same mistakes. And Being able to hold yourself accountable and look back on where you went wrong or, like, the role models that could have helped lead you astray, it's cathartic in a way because, first of all, it's less, there's less shame associated with it because you're just acknowledging the fact that, like, yes... I didn't know as much then and I made some mistakes, but I'm actively trying to learn and grow, which takes power away from people who could look back on stuff and try to use it against you or even look at current stuff and try to use it against you. If you're actively trying to learn and grow and better yourself as a human being and a rider, the mistakes that you make are part of that journey and like no one is perfect, everyone makes mistakes. So, it's not really anything to be ashamed of. And being able to look back and go look at where you went wrong and want to learn and grow from that and do better because of that is actually a strength rather than a weakness. People who are too proud to admit when they ever went wrong or where they may have been misled or where they might have done things in a way that's not perfect, people who are too proud to do that aren't actively growing and working on themselves and that's a lot more embarrassing than trying to improve and grow as you learn. Like the horse people who dig their heels in and want to go into their elderly years just yelling about things that have been disproven and have been strongly linked to welfare deficit and justify their reason to continue being able to do that until they're blue in the face. They've already lost because they value their ego more than the well-being of the horses that most of them will claim that they care about. So People like that, like, you don't want to end up like that. You don't want to wait until you're, like, basically retiring from horses to have to start considering how you may have handled them. Because when you have a lot of time on your hands to read stuff online or where you might come across stuff or start thinking about things more critically when you're away from the barn, you're going to feel a lot more guilty if you don't have the means of trying to affect change where you can. So, like, don't wait too long. Like, but again, like, don't wait too long in being in denial, but also realize that it, it's better to change and acknowledge where you went wrong than it is to never do that. So at any point, if you can stop for a second and just go like, okay, like there are some things that, I, there's some biases that I held about horses or some things that I've done to horses that were not fair and I regret that deeply. Being able to do that is a strength. Um, Don't just, don't hang on to your shame so deeply that you're afraid to use it for the lesson that it is i guess is the better way of saying that um, don't don't be so ashamed of like stuff you've done in the past that you're afraid of talking about it for a lesson like and, and i'm not saying everyone needs to talk about this publicly even like talking to yourself about it and just acknowledging the fact that like yes i've done things wrong but i didn't know as much then as i do now and i'm happy for my growth being able to do that frees you by acknowledging the fact that you went wrong, but that you're actively trying to do better. And also, if you are able to talk about it publicly, it normalizes the idea that a lot of the people who have softened their training methods with their horses did not just start off like that, that a lot of us have had to really change and develop our training methods and reconsider our ideology and have kind of done that over the course of years. And that a lot of us started out in situations that are not dissimilar to a lot of other riders. And acknowledging that shows that it's not about perfection, that, like, a lot of people have made mistakes, a lot of people have started out in the same situations as people who may be struggling to feel, to, to, to figure out why certain things don't sit right with them. Showing people that even those who are more welfare-focused now and who share, like, a lot of the stuff that can make people feel defensive and reactionary, showing the average rider that those very people could have started out just like them or in some cases even worse in terms of the practices that they normalized and did shows the capacity for growth and shows the imperfection of people and I think that's why it's important to talk about like a lot of people soften their methods because of all the harsh things that they've had normalized and taught to them and eventually they hit the point where they cannot do it anymore and they want to do better and then they become really invested in learning how to do things in a softer way and really becoming more concerned about the well-being of horses like a lot of people started off in a place where they were harsh they were that that difficult rider who wanted to punish horses or who was actively encouraged to do so to fix a whole lot of training problems a lot of people started out like that and that's why they choose to soften their methods after because they're regretting it and they want to do something that's safer and kinder to the horse so yeah don't be ashamed of mistakes that you made but also don't be so proud or egotistical that you're afraid to admit where you ever might have gone wrong Especially if you choose to post on social media because when you put stuff out there, especially in writing or video format or a photo where people can, like, see the caption you wrote and stuff, if you try to deny, like, where you came from or you try to hide it or you want to pretend that you're never wrong... It generally will come back to you even if it's, like, just you that sees it. You'll get, like, a Facebook memory popping up and you'll be like, wow, I really used to be a dick to my horse or wow, like, I did make mistakes. So don't don't try to play the role of being perfect and never making mistakes and always being the person who does what's best for your horse because honestly speaking like even the best of horse owners at some point in their career as a horse person even if it's not an overly severe decision like at some point every horse owner out there has probably made a selfish decision that has impacted their horse even if it's out of just necessity because of how the world works or how boarding stables work and so on and so forth every horse owner has at some point probably Made a decision that or a mistake that resulted in something that impacted their horse, even if just a little. Everyone has done that. It's hard to be perfect. You can't even be perfect to other humans in your life, despite the fact that we can like literally communicate with them and have them understand it past the point of horses being able to understand us. So, no one's mistake free. Everyone can cause harm. And Most horse people have, I would argue even all of them, but I just say most because obviously I can't make the claim that every single horse person ever has done something wrong, but people make mistakes and it's really hard to not make mistakes when the entire industry is structured in a way that encourages you to make mistakes and to learn wrong things about basic care and welfare practices. It's very hard to not make a mistake in that environment. Like, we are set up to fail because of how the horse industry is run right now and because of how much misinformation is out there. So, don't beat yourself up for making mistakes in an en- in an environment that encourages you to learn the wrong things and encourages you to engage in repeating tradition despite the fact that said tradition has had a lot of criticism and holes poked into its efficacy so yeah don't don't be don't be too ashamed to admit that because yeah we are set up for failure there are very little protections to ensure that beginner horse people are getting the help and the expertise that they are being told that they are it is very very hard to be in the horse world and find the right type of setup, even if you do a lot of research, because the these traditional mindsets and a lot of this misinformation is so ingrained that you can have a very hard time, especially depending on your location, finding anywhere to go to learn to ride that will actually fully meet your expectations as a rider, which is why it is important to be empowered enough to want to educate yourself on your own and to find a trainer that is willing to kind of meet you in the middle and talk to you about things and have important discussions. But You're not always going to find the perfect situation. And if you're stuck in a situation where you can recognize that the barn that you're at is not everything you want it to be, but it's the best that you could find, that's okay too. You can't hold yourself responsible for existing in a structure that has been rigged against you. Um, And all we can do is try to change that structure and try to alter it and make it better for the horses and people. That's all we can do. So, anyways. Um, my mouth is dry. I really need to drink water. But that's my rant for the day. I went off on a lot of tangents and I probably lost track of like what I was actually talking about as per usual. So um, if I did, I apologize. But yeah, um, I think that we need to be gentle with ourselves in our learning and growth. But we also need to hold the horse industry as a whole more accountable, especially upper level riders and people in positions of power. Um, And I think that's important and it's necessary in change. And just remember, guys, there's way more of us, like more of us, the guys that either don't show or if we do show, we're not showing in a way where we are respected by the upper level people. There's more of us than there are them. And we have the means to really start making demands for better welfare and to start talking about it and educating people. So don't feel helpless. Um, Anyways, for those of you who like my podcast and are interested in supporting the podcast and my other endeavors, I have a Patreon channel that you can subscribe to for as little as $1 a month, patreon.com slash s-d-e-q-u-u-s. There's also special tiers for people who want training help, and there's also access to tutorial videos and all sorts of different training stuff and to ask questions uh, and send in video critiques and all sorts of that stuff. If you're not interested in subscribing, I also do online consults and you can book those off. Off of my website if you go to services there's an online consults tab my website is milestoneequestrian.com.ca. Milestoneequestrian.ca. um And yeah, you can book that on there if you just want to do like a one-time thing or like a couple times thing without the subscription. That's a great option. Um, And yeah, I also just have some other tabs for like anywhere where people want to support the podcast and whatnot, because any of the Patreon stuff or like the donation stuff or stuff for online consoles, it just goes back into getting me equipment to make the podcast better. um, And for YouTube videos and and whatnot and all those daily expenses. And also honestly, right now, like Harlow's colic bill, because um, that's going to be a, a hefty boy. So um, there too. Uh, I also have my merch store shop milestone and that has a lot of fun horsey themed apparel. And then I also have my bridles, saddle pads, some hoodies and base layers that have just gotten released on the equestrian.ca website, A-M-O-R-E equestrian.ca all of my products are under the milestone tab on there and you can check those out there there's saddle pads bridles um, we just released our new base layer it's super comfy super stretchy highly recommend checking it out all of those stuff um, yeah those proceeds just go back into the business Um, a lot of my money is in product right now which is why I plug a lot of that because that's like yeah for vet bills and stuff it's like okay let's move more product and catch up because holy crap horses just like to hurt themselves all at the same time. Um, But yeah, so there's stuff on there as well if you want to check that out. And yeah, I'm on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at S-D-E-Q-U-U-S, and you can check me out there. Um, Also, my YouTube channel, Shelby Dennis, you can check out videos there as well. But yeah, if you want to do like video suggestions, if you want to send any video suggestions or podcast suggestions or send in questions or join live Q&As and whatnot, I highly recommend checking out the Patreon. But all that stuff just kind of helps support the podcast and the extra time that we put into this because it is time consuming and building a business is hard when you're doing so from scratch so I like opening those little subscription stuff because it's it's not much but it's good help when you're trying to invest in as many different aspects of business growth as me Um, especially when you have horses that are actively trying to die Um, lol but not really because that was really scary so Um, here's to not having anything bad happen knock on wood guys gotta do that anyways um have a good day I hope that this rambling mess was somewhat educational or at least made you feel heard because yeah everyone has skeletons in their closet especially when the people that are in charge of educating you have a whole graveyard in their closet um it's very hard to not carry their skeletons with you when they teach you how to do exactly what they do from day one, when you're the most impressionable. So don't fault yourself for the standards set by an industry that is sick and needs help reforming. Um, And have a great day, everyone, and say hi to your horses.